welcome to the Cadre Journal. I'm Joseph, and I am joined today by Justin Yuri. Justin is the treasurer of Friends of Swazi Freedom and a member of the Kansas Socialist Book Club. Justin, feel free to introduce yourself and say hi. Yeah, thank you, Joseph. Um, yeah, hi. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to uh, discuss what we're going to discuss today because I feel like it's kind of a unique way. But um, yeah, I am, uh, like Joseph said, the treasurer of elected of the Friends of Swazi Freedom. So I get to handle um, taxes. You know, it's tax season, so that's always fun. And then, um, yeah, like Joseph said, just real quick, uh, we started the Kansas Socialist Book Club for anyone who is in the state of Kansas. Um, we get together on Discord as well as in person, and we study a variety of books. Right now, we're reading Rosa Luxemburg's Reformer Revolution, and I will give Joseph a link for that. And if you're in the state of Kansas, you are more than welcome to join us. Um, and you could probably check that out in the description. But uh, yeah, I, the reason Joseph had me here, I imagine, is we'll talk more about is um, back in December, I took a trip to South Africa at the invitation of the Communist Party of Swaziland. Uh, Comrade Simfawe of the CP Swaziland asked me, hey, you know, um, would you like to come and teach us some stuff? Um, would you like to come and teach that to us? Because as we'll get into, the um, Communist Party of Swaziland faces a lot of repression. So they wanted to know stuff about like street medicine. They wanted to know um, how to treat gunshot wounds, how to apply tourniquets, um, how to use radios, that kind of thing. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I, I went over there and for about a period of uh, two weeks, I was able to teach them as much as I could in two weeks. Um, yeah, it was definitely an interesting experience and uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll get more into that. But that's a little bit about me. So I want to start off by discussing something that we talk a lot about on our show uh, and just in general with our organization of the notion of proletarian internationalism. So I wonder what that means to you when you hear that and, and also how you interpreted that that principle that all good communists and anti-imperialists should have and use that when deciding to go to South Africa to join up with uh, the CPS, go and help them uh, demonstrate these techniques that they needed to know um, and just in general how you uh, believe that showing solidarity this way is an important task for all those who are committed to anti-imperialism yeah yeah absolutely um so as as we know uh capitalism is a global system right it's not just limited to any one country even if it has certain levels of development and say the united states it's a lot more developed than let's say in swaziland for example where it's still semi-feudalistic and because it is a global system i believe that we have to attack it from both inside uh, the imperialist core where we live in the united states or if someone's looking at this in europe maybe uh, from there as well, but it also has to be attacked externally, right? Because um, the way the way I see it is that the uh, imperialism as a world system extracts all of its wealth and resources from the periphery, right? Like countries like Swaziland, right? And that is how it is able to provide the cheap commodities that are used to like pacify the masses of the global north and all that. Um, but at the same time. Uh, the imperialist system relies on a level of internal stability within the core, right? Um, and so that's where we as communists in the imperial core, you know, a lot of people ask, what can we do about it? Uh, what we can do about it is um, you can, as I guess, destabilize things so that it makes it harder 
for the militaries of the imperialist world to go overseas and, and you know, brutalize and colonize and extract wealth. Um, and, and I see that. Yeah. And so it's kind of like you have to have an attack from both directions. And I believe that's like if you want to talk about how to implement proletarian internationalism, uh, I believe it has to be a two pronged attack. And, and as um, you know, comrades, especially those of us who live in the first world, that is one of our duties is to destabilize things from inside the imperial core. However, um, I was given an opportunity and an invitation by the Communist Party to kind of do the other part of that was um, to assist them in their mission to destabilize it from the outside. And so I kind of helped them, you know, do the inverse. I kind of helped them attack it from from without. And so in terms of proletarian internationalism, that's how I seen um, my trip to South Africa fitting into the picture. But it, it also to answer your question, what does it mean to me is um, I feel that, you know, obviously, as people living in the global north, we are very privileged. Um, we, we have a lot of economic benefits that we derive from. And I believe that um, we have sort of like an ethical duty to not not to um, how do you say this? Like a lot of people want to feel guilty and let that guilt overwhelm them. And, and it leads to a sense of paralysis, which I think is very bad. Um, it's good that people are like waking up and recognizing, oh, I'm complicit in the system, right? But I also believe that if we're complicit in a system, we should do something and it's bestowed us with certain privileges, such as, I don't know, uh, a passport that says United States of America lets me to travel pretty much any country. Um, or you can use your your privileges of money. I mean, I am not out of everyone in the first world has a lot of money, but for the, I work as a software engineer, so for those of us who are like me, using your money as a, um, as, as a weapon to fight imperialism, and just basically using the benefits of imperialism that's given to you to instead of live like a comfortable lifestyle and, and passively benefit from it, even if you're not directly contributing to it, to use those benefits uh, to assist other people throughout the world. Yeah, basically, Joseph, I think it all boils down to imperialism is a worldwide global system. Uh, I, I don't believe that uh, socialism in one country will work, particularly in the United States where we both live. Um, therefore, we have a duty as communists to be tied in to uh, struggles around the world for not just our benefit, but for the benefit of the global working class. I wonder also how you see this effort as counteracting the tendency of communists in the imperial court to have a an imperial chauvinism of their own as you mentioned to focus exclusively on one country and sort of trying to build a, a settler socialism in the united states or a patriotic socialism in the united states so how do you also see that as a way to fight against this chauvinism that some communists have of just saying we're just going to focus on the united states and, and nothing else yeah, but like I said, to read a book is just one thing. We're still, especially in the United States, we are very divorced from the act, like not just mentally, but physically in terms of miles, right? So interacting with communists uh, in, in various uh, third world struggles, and in our case, the Communist Party of Swaziland, puts a name to these words. It puts a human face on it. And I believe that by interacting and actually getting to know people, not just as comrades, but as like friends, right? Um, so like putting a human face on that, I think goes a long way. 
uh, because, you know, like people care about struggles when they become personal and, and when it's your friends, that's definitely personal. So that's that's one way I think that interacting with, um, you know, international struggles, um, communist movements is good to overcome the chauvinism. And two, uh, if we want to look at history, right? Look at what's happening in, um, so the chauvinistic socialists, which I believe the patriotic, you know, the so-called patriotic socialists is uh, one, the most extreme manifestation of that. But I believe we also see a more mild version um, in some member, I'm trying to not be sectarian here, but some members of organizations such as the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, I'm, I'm saying that because I know from personal experiences, like a side anecdote, I was involved with the, um, for a very short time with the DSA in Topeka, Kansas, right? And um, there was a, I was trying to plan an action, a demonstration to protest soldiers from Fort Riley, which is one of the military installations where they send soldiers from Kansas, where I live, uh, over to um Poland and Korea, right? And at the time, I knew that there was going to be a troop movement of soldiers on a bus that were going to be deploying directly to Poland. And this was in 2020. So it was before Ukraine happened. But it was still, you know, obviously, it's still bad, right? Even if that war wasn't happening at that time. So, you know, my, my idea was a little, uh, I'll admit, it was a little eccentric to, to basically get a truck and put a big sign in the back that says, hey, if you're deploying uh, and you don't want to get out of your you want to get out of your deployment, call the GI rights hotline, which is a, a phone network that's staffed by volunteers where basically soldiers who want to get out of the army, they call it and they help them find a way to get out of the army honorably and all that. And so that that's one way I thought maybe we could disrupt the deployment. And there was a particular individual in this group who um, they basically said, hey, um, Kansans don't care about proletarian internationalism so much. They don't care about that kind of uh, foreign policy, so-called. Uh, let's just stick to bread and butter issues like wages. And, and to me, that was part of a wake-up call, like, oh, <laughs> uh, what, we're just going to give up? Like, we're not even going to try anything? Okay. Uh, that's just kind of a personal anecdote of um, how I've seen that settler mindset manifest itself. But to go back to the question, Joseph, that you asked, um, why is it important? Uh, let's look at historically the Nordic states, right? Because a lot of these chauvinistic socialists, they'll say, oh, uh, Norway and Denmark, they are great examples of socialism. Uh, one, which I know you know, but some viewers might not know this, is when you think of the invasion of Iraq, it's not just the United States that was in Iraq, but um, no, it wasn't just the Americans there. It was the British, the Danish, so on, right? Uh, the French, all these other countries that, oh, look in Europe, they got socialism. Um, so for one, they really are out there doing it just as much as we are. This, I mean, that's the example they want to point to as what socialism looks like. And two, if we look at what's going on politically in those countries, their you know, supposedly wonderful welfare state is under attack from the right. Uh, it, it, it's not permanent and it is falling apart. It might have been somewhat stable for, what, a century or so, but uh, the point is, if we don't get rid of this settler mindset and we don't get rid of this first world chauvinism, what's going to happen is, yeah, maybe we do struggle and maybe we do get a wonderful welfare state, even though that welfare state wouldn't probably only be for white people or something like that. And um, the problem is that's going to go away, just like it is in Europe. 
um, because it doesn't actually, I, I like to say um, there's two kinds of contradictions, right? There's antagonistic contradictions, non-antagonistic contradictions. And I believe that the class struggle is a antagonistic contradiction, meaning fundamentally there is no middle ground between proletariat and bourgeoisie. Like there is no way to resolve that contradiction other than a class conflict, right? And, um, and the point I'm making is that the settler chauvinistic misconception of socialism does not resolve that uh, antagonistic contradiction. It tries to smooth it over with class collaboration. And um, it's kind of like, okay, we'll let you have your empire as long as we can have our welfare state. Not only is that like morally wrong, it history proves it does not work. And as, as socialists and communists, I believe we want a permanent solution to the problem of class conflict, which is a dictatorship of the proletariat, right? Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's why this internationalism stuff is so important, because I argue it is the only way we will ever see a dictatorship of the proletariat, um, especially here in the imperial core, is if we work together and see that, you know, our interests are tied up with the interests of those of the third world. And I have more in common with an African miner or a Swazi uh, textile worker than I do the capitalist class in my own country. Um, that's, that's what I would say. You're making an excellent point about also the that chauvinism that's expressed and just trying to advocate for wage increases, as we know also that wage increases in the in the first world contribute to unequal exchange between the first world and the third world as well. So I mean, just the continuation of this uh, this fake socialism that is just interested in improving the conditions of the, the mostly white working class of the imperial core. I totally agree. Is uh, is a distraction from the interests of anti-imperialism. But I just want to focus on that question. I, th I think you've done a great job of answering it, but this is something that I've actually heard from people um, who respond to our, you know, our solidarity with the Swazi struggle. Uh, and people will ask, like, why Swaziland? Why does this matter, um, you know, to someone who doesn't live there? And, the, and you, you know, you've done an excellent job of showing exactly how that's relevant to everybody um, but also to just the general interests of anti-imperialism that any struggle um as Hassan Kanafi said you know imperialism lays its body over the world and anywhere we strike it uh, we deal a blow to it so it doesn't matter if it's in Swaziland or uh, you know if it's in a different country it is all relevant but why is it important that the Swazi struggle is against neocolonialism it's against Taiwanese colonialism in, in Swaziland. It's against a monarchy. So it, it's also against a, an apartheid collaborating state. And why does it kind of show the the arrogance, I think, that someone would have when they pose this question of, oh, why does that matter? That's just over there in some small country. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question. And uh, yeah, I agree. It is an arrogant question, but we got to meet people where they're at and educate them where they're at, right? So we'll go ahead and answer it. Um, I guess I, I guess to segue into that, I want to talk about how I kind of got involved with this purely by chance, because um, I'll admit uh, before I joined the Friends of Swazi Freedom, I will admit I did not even know Swaziland was a country like I, I just I was ignorant. I didn't know. Um, so one, it was I guess it was kind of a selfish motivation because I wanted to get involved with the group like I wanted to be involved with something. And Tori came to me and said, hey, uh, this is something that we 
I'm very big on like, I want people to invite me to things. I, I try not to like butt my way into stuff without being invited. Um, and so when Tori said that, oh, we need a treasure, I was like, okay, cool. And then I went and listened to the introduction of it. And I was like, oh, you know, um, when, when you join, you have that new membership orientation with the PowerPoint slide where they explained to you the history of the Swaziland struggle. And I was like, okay, um, this is this is kind of cool. And I was already sold on anti-imperialism at that point. But for those who aren't right, um, you, they naturally will ask, well, what does this have to do with me? Um, the global markets are interconnected. Right. And there are two main commodity exports that Swaziland has. Right. Uh, one of them is sugar. Sugar directly benefits um both the United States, because um, if you ever talk to the International Secretary uh, Pius, he will tell you that uh, the sugar directly goes to Coca-Cola, right? And I believe in Friends of Swazi Freedom, correct me if I'm wrong, Joseph, but I believe our info uh, committee did some research and, and tracked down where exactly that sugar is going to. It goes to a, a Coca-Cola manufacturing plant, and I believe Minnesota. I could be wrong. I believe it's Minnesota, though. So, like, if you want to ask how does this affect me, like, do you drink soda? If so, then the sugar, the, like, the sugar that's harvested by Swazi labor is directly going to you and in that very direct fashion. It also goes to the European Union. So if there's any viewers who are uh, maybe, maybe you're not American, but you live somewhere in Europe, uh, the vast majority of the sugar goes to Europe, right? Um, so there's that. And then another one, which you, Joseph, I know you've highlighted this on your show, so I won't go too much into it, but the Taiwanese connection, right? That's our tax dollars, right? That's our tax dollars, our military hardware that we invent that goes to Taiwan. And then Taiwan in turn launders the helicopters and the rifles and all that to Swaziland. Um, so in a sense, all of us, like, do you pay taxes? I imagine most of us do pay taxes to some degree. And therefore, you're paying for these helicopters that Maswati's police are using to shoot. Uh, I, I just read an article on the Swaziland News. There was a young child and a mother, uh, nothing to do with communism or anything. They were just innocent bystanders. They were shot and killed by, uh, you know, police officers in the helicopter. So, again, to go back, how does this affect you? Well, you, the viewer, assuming you pay some taxes, you're the one that's paying for that. So you are kind of complicit in that to some level. I would say that's how it, the struggle completely ties in a concrete way um, to someone who might be asking, how does this affect me? Well, I think that's how. And I want to pick up on something you just mentioned, actually, because it, it made me think about, you know, the, the interest that a lot of folks have. And of course, um, I guess this is kind of timely as well in, with respect to abolition and police brutality and um, police violence in the Imperial Corps. But this is also something that we've observed and researched about when you mentioned this police brutality uh, that, you know, when these things happen in Swaziland, again, they're they're funded, they're supported by a network that involves American police, yes. whether that be through, you know, special forces training, military okay. hardware, um, these programs that the State Department and Afri AFRICOM and, uh, you know, other, other pillars of the American imperial network uh, support will train Swazi neocolonial police, will commit brutality against people, against laborers, against communist activists so yeah you know it, it wouldn't with respect to how does this involve me it's obvious and anybody who cares about 
abolition and ending police brutality domestically, of course, I think has to see it in a global perspective of how police brutality works in, in a neo-colonial context too. And just to further that point, you know, you were mentioning the necessity of having connections with comrades and, and putting faces to the comrades that you work with. It can't just be you do proletarian internationalism online and, you know, you make connections. That's very important. But I totally agree, having met the comrades in Swaziland as well, that it's very necessary to meet people face to face and form that personal connection. And one comrade, Comrade Sambulo, that you yes. met mm -hmm. actually was just recently arrested by the Swazi police, just to emphasize that point of yes. brutality. Can you yeah. discuss that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, comrade Sambulo, uh, I know him better as Comrade Revelation. That's how he introduced himself to me. Um, but Sambulo actually means revelation in Siswati. Um, so Comrade Sambulo was... Um, he was one of the people I trained up, actually, when I went there. Um, I, I knew him very well. Um, I consider him a good friend. And and I remember, like, just as a side note, we would uh, – I brought a bunch of books with me, right? And some of them were just, like, military first aid manuals and that sort of thing. But one of the books I brought, um, just because I thought it was kind of unique and it, they would like it, was um, – the selected works of Josip Broz Tito, um, you know, the Yugoslavian uh, leader of socialist Yugoslavia. And uh, he was fascinated by that. And and it, it makes sense because if you look at, I mean, I know Tito's kind of contentious among communists because some people say he's a revisionist, which for the record, I would agree with with that but uh the good thing he did was his internationalism right uh he was very involved in african liberation struggles providing them with weapons so he would always ask me about that you know and we would literally talk for hours about uh yugoslavia and and just the various things so that's just kind of like a, a personal note of uh, one of the things i remember about sambulo but yeah he um him and then uh i know him as comrade bazooka uh, they were both the gentlemen who were in the video that we made, um, the Taiwanese neocolonialism video. Both of the Swazis who uh, gave their testimony, they, uh, um, Comrade Bazooka was shot in the leg with a rubber bullet, um, and he's currently in the hospital right now. Um, I hope he's doing okay. I texted him. He hasn't responded yet, but I hope he's doing okay. Um, he's in the hospital, so thankfully he's alive, but... Um, yeah, if you, uh, you and then um, Sambulo is arrested. He is still arrested. I believe his um, I believe his arraignment is on Monday, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, the, I, I've heard that the judges are throwing the whole book at him, um, you know, like domestic terrorism and this, that and the other thing. And um yeah, uh, thankfully, uh, was some of the training we talked about when I went there was like how police do interrogations and stuff. So hope hopefully some of that was of use to, you know, when they're trying to question him to, to resist that questioning, um, hopefully. But um, yeah, it's like the, the, the people that were arrested and injured by the regime, I know them directly and it's, um, and they're real people. And to me, that just makes me more motivated to help them out because I view that as no different than what if one of my comrades in the United States was detained by the police and arrested? What if one of them went to um, a Tyre Nichols uh, protest and was shot in the leg by a rubber bullet? And um, Joseph, you, you said earlier, um, talking about the training that uh, our police and military give. I'm glad you brought that up. I'd like to expand on that a little bit more, if that's OK. Yeah, uh, no problem. Yeah. Um, so I know I believe it's every year the uh, Iswatini Royal Police Force sends about 10. I think it's 10 
uh, police officers, and they come from a unit called the OSSU, right? The Operational Services and Support Unit. Uh, OSSU, I would compare that in like American terms. They're like the Swaziland Marshals, like very elite law enforcement agency. It's more like a, a private, not like a private military, but they're more of like a paramilitary than they are cops. Uh, and they are sent over to um, from Swaziland to the United States. Actually, we bring them over here and we train them up in you know, whatever they teach at the uh, I believe it's the Federal Law Enforcement Academy in Georgia. Um, but to, to tie this into other struggles, we're talking about uh, the Atlanta Stop Cop City movement. Right. They're trying to prevent the construction of this massive, sprawling um urban domestic warfare complex to train police on that kind of thing, right? I believe this is another example of how these struggles are related because um, if that were to be constructed, that's probably where they're going to bring the Swazi police. That's not just the Swaziland police, but it could be the Indian police where they're used to repress the, uh, the Naxalites. It could be um, the, the uh, any number of countries, right? Um, and, and, and so it's very important to express solidarity with those movements as well, because you might think, oh, well, this is just a domestic cop movement. Um, what does it have to do with international? If you read the papers from the Atlanta Police Foundation who funds this, right? Uh, it says, well, where, where are most of your students going to be coming from? I believe it said 56% of those students would be international students. Um, so it's, it's very much, uh, all these struggles are very much related. And that is another one I wanted to bring up as an example, because that's, that's in the news right now. It's currently going on. And, um, I, I know the communist party has expressed solidarity with that movement and as well for that reason, because like I said, all these things are connected. Imperialism's a global system. Yeah, that, that definitely did. I also just wanted to mention as well. I mean, all the research that we've been able to do and put together about how, uh, you know, Israel is also giving a lot of weapons to uh, the Swazi police and a lot of military training as well. And as a result, you see the Communist Party of Swaziland very active in solidarity for Palestine. Yes. Um, just to see how, you know, all this internationalism is expressed. And I just think, I do still think that there is a kind of manner in which people can be dismissive of this solidarity when it comes from Swaziland. I think sometimes it's like too easy for people in the in the imperial court to kind of judge movements from abroad without ever having met anybody who's actively involved uh, as we both have and just say, well, it's a small country. It doesn't really matter. Right. Um, and I, I think it is this kind of this arrogance, really, um, without ever having kind of gone and conducted internationalism. Um, but the other thing I wanted to ask, I guess, just to kind of expand on this is where you think the solidarity can go. So, you know, we've discussed on this channel a lot of different opportunities for solidarity and anti-imperialism and definitely more of these kind of direct personal connections, bringing books, bringing supplies, bringing training are important. What would you recommend to, to folks who are kind of interested in, in this method of solidarity? Um, and I know that many people have you know conducted something like this whether it be for cuba going and trying to get past the blockade but as i think we're showing there are many places in the world that are in active struggle right now um that and some don't really get this attention on the kind of leftist news circuit uh, if you will to show you know how important they are but it is every struggle is important um so yeah what would you kind of like 
recommend to folks if they're interested in this kind of solidarity? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a great question, Joseph. Um, first, I want to just circle back to the point you made about putting a face to a name. Um, for anyone who's curious about this, the Communist Party of Swaziland on Facebook as well as on Twitter, uh, and they, this is open to the public. Anyone, you know, no matter where you're at in the world can go. Uh, join their Twitter spaces or their Facebook meetings, and you can see for yourself where they have their meetings, and um, they'll even let you ask questions if you're curious. So I would say um, if you want to help put a face to a name, um, they, they invite everyone from around the world because that's one of the huge pillars of their part. As I asked the general secretary, um, Kenneth, I asked him, hey, you know, like, what would you say is like the pillars of your party? First thing he answered, without a doubt, internationalism, right? Uh, that's that's very important to their party. And so if you want to kind of put a face to a name and kind of see for yourself, um, go join one of their Twitter spaces and listen, you know, and, and, and some of the things that they'll say in there, it'll really like blow your mind, you know. Um, so I would say if you want to remedy that chauvinism, you think you might have some of that and you are in a friend or something, uh, go go sit in on one of their Twitter spaces. They welcome it. You know, that's it's very welcome um, as they go to the question. Now, Joseph, you asked about what can we do and what case can we exercise solidarity? Um, one one thing I want to make clear and, and in this, the case of the Communist Party of Swaziland, um, they have invited people. They're they're very hospitable. But I would say before you do any kind of international work, you might want to get like you might want to make sure that it's welcome, you know, not like try and insert yourself into a struggle where it might not be welcome. Um, but in the case of Swaziland, I know firsthand and I can attest that it is absolutely welcome. Um, one of the things we did, um, I said, well, what, what other kind of things do you guys need help with? Because I believe it was uh, Che Guevara who said like a revolution is not just about hatred and destroying things, but it's also about love. So like a revolution is not just about tearing down Maswati's regime, but building something back up to replace it. Right. But um, so they said we would love to have someone who knows agriculture come and teach us about farming, you know, like scientific farming methods that are sustainable for the environment and, and can because starvation is a huge issue in Swaziland. I remember um, I was speaking with Comrade Candy, their treasurer, and she was telling me about how, um, you know, like people in Swaziland. The government will say, oh, there's no starvation. Look, all the stores are full of food. And that's true. The stores are full of food. But in order to buy food from the store, you need money, which most Swazi peasants don't have. So they will go down to the river or the forest and literally forage berries and whatever plants. And sometimes they just die from poisoning because, you know. They, they, they know the plants, but maybe they make a mistake and they eat a poisonous mushroom or something. Um, and, and so that's the kind of situation they're facing uh, where we send people over there not to teach techniques of torture and, and imperialism and stuff, but to teach revolutionary techniques like um, uh, food growing. Another one is medicine. Um, they are always, 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 they have a clinic that actually the Friends of Swazi Freedom helped fundraise to get that off the ground, right? Um and, and I believe the clinic specifically tailored to a uh, women's health, because that's another issue I was talking with the comrades about was, again, this is something we take for granted in the Imperial Corps, but it's a huge issue over there is tampons and sanitary pads, right? They just don't have access to them um, because all of the, the cotton and textiles and stuff that you would normally use to manufacture uh, women's sanitary products are instead used to manufacture these garments for Taiwan. And, and because it's a very poor country, they don't have access. So they use 
dirty clothes. Uh, they might reuse the same tampon. Uh, and it leads to, there's an epidemic, I learned this, an epidemic of uh, uterus cancer among Swazi women from that reason. And it's something that could be entirely prevented by sanitary products, um, you know, like female hygiene products. And, and that kind of blew my mind too. So like having uh, like people who specialize in women's health to go over there as well, I know that would be extremely welcome. Uh, there's agriculture, um, uh, training like I did. If if you're if you happen to be a military veteran listening to this podcast and you have some freedom to travel around, like that would be extremely welcome too. Um, they they could always use more training on that stuff because I was only able to go for two weeks. Um, and yeah, just stuff like that. Um, and and if anyone, if you have a skill and you are wondering, hey, could this be of use to Swaziland? Like, please get in touch with the friends of Swazi Freedom. And we will let you know. And, and if that is something you're interested in, in doing, like uh, I can't promise any money or anything like that. But like in terms of the connections of like getting you in touch with the right people over there, uh, we can absolutely do that. And I can assure you that would be very much welcomed by the Communist Party. Awesome. Thanks so much. And yeah, just in general, I think like encouraging people to learn about how to get involved um, and definitely to join and and link up with the friends of Swazi freedom um, in terms of like having an apparatus to actually facilitate this travel and this solidarity is super important. Um, I'm just curious, I guess, as just the last question where you see, and I, I like to ask folks this and the comrades of the CPS that I've spoken to as well, but where you see this struggle going um, and with the, you know, the added support of international solidarity, how do you think this is a boost to the CPS's chance uh, to really conduct a revolution in Swaziland, to overthrow the monarchy, uh, to establish a dictatorship of the proletariat in Swaziland, and in so doing, you know, have this revolution in the global south that will send shockwaves, uh, you know, however, however they manifest, but will send shockwaves in the imperialist system. But I wonder how you see this this struggle going, and and what the immediate needs of the struggle are. Uh, you know, I you know you just mentioned a bunch of ways people can get involved, but just what the political outlook of the struggle is um, from your perspective as someone showing solidarity. Yeah. Um, so I think if you if you again, I like to um, besides just talking to comrades in Swaziland, there's a website I like to go to called the Swaziland News. Um, not the Times of Swaziland, because that one is state owned media by the the royal family, but the Swaziland News in particular. Uh, I like to look at that one. And and if you read the articles there, uh, and this is not Communist Party of Swaziland. There's a group called the Swaziland International Solidarity Forces. Um, they've begun escalating to a level of armed conflict. Um, and again, I want to be clear, that's not the Communist Party of Swaziland. That is a separate organization. But um, I, I, if you ask me, I'd, I think that's... Um, that's kind of the direction that they're going. Um, and it's, it's a rough direction to go, but, um, uh, the, the, the good news is based on my talking with them and studying the situation, the Swazi people are fed up with the monarchy. Like, like nobody, I mean, there are some people in rural villages who still fervently believe in the King and they are usually like the wealthier peasants and stuff. But, um, the overall, the, the Swazi masses are just fed up with the king. And I believe that because of the good political education work that the Communist Party has been doing, that not only do they know, hey, it's wrong to have this king, 
But now they're like, we can replace it with something else. We can replace it with democracy. Um, so I very much believe that, um, you know, based on the political education that they've done, uh, um, the direction they're going is that their, their struggle is definitely going to be successful. Um, unfortunately, I also think it's going to be some violent days ahead because the regime brings it upon themselves, right? Because they're literally in helicopters flying around shooting innocent women and children. Um, they're out with peaceful protesters. I want to be clear, like the Communist Party has been peaceful protests, Um not that they don't have a right to escalate, but they have it's factual. They've been peaceful. And um, look how the police responds. They just broke one of my friend's legs with a rubber bullet. Um, that's very intentional to do that. Um, it's, it's just the regime is just cracking down on repression. But it's, you know, as the Communist Party says, they um, the more that they crack down on it, the more people become aware and enlightened of the need to get rid of the monarchy. There's no better way to sell someone on the evils of a regime than to watch that regime come and crack down on your friends and arrest them and imprison them and all that. Um, so I'm overall net optimistic about this. Um, and um, what was the other part of the question, Joseph? Yeah, just that was pretty much a good answer. Okay. Just like the political okay. work in general. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, awesome. Um, yeah, just before just before we wrap up, uh, is there anything else? I mean, I, I appreciate that you mentioned like news sources, uh, friends of Swazi Freedom to check out. Is there anything else folks who are learning about this or interested in getting involved can can check out or should look at? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what I like to do to stay up to date on Swaziland, um, so Swaziland is heavily tied into South Africa as well. I mean, it's it's literally sandwiched between Mozambique and South Africa. So I like to follow the news, not just in Swaziland, but in South Africa, as well as Mozambique, because what happens there, especially in South Africa, uh, the, the general secretary actually described it as like a sub-imperialist power. That was his phrasing of it. Um, so, yeah, check out, follow what's happening in South Africa and Mozambique. Uh, as far as Swazi news sources that are good, um, the Facebook Communist Party of Swaziland page is very good. Uh, if you have Facebook, check it out there. Uh, Communist Party of Swaziland is on Twitter. There's also some other accounts like uh, the Iswatini protests account. Um, there is also the Swaziland News. The Swaziland News is independent journalism. Um, there's also the Times of Swaziland, but just be aware when you look at that one, that is owned by the royal family. So you're going to get a certain bias when you read that news source. Um, but yeah, like on Twitter, I also know they have a hashtag called Teeny Twitter. So you can actually follow people in Swaziland and, you know, like follow it that way as well and hear directly from the people. Um, and those are some, and of course, friends of Swazi freedom, you can follow us. You can join us if you're interested. Um, we, we have some pretty good, um, news updates from there as well. And, um, yeah, those are all wonderful ways. I think that you can get in touch and get closer to the struggle. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Justin. It's been a pleasure talking to you and mm -hmm. getting to learn more about your international solidarity and why it's so important and why we really you know, emphasize that with our group um, and everything we try to do. So thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. And, and it's been a pleasure getting to chat. Yeah. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you for having me on and uh, have a good day as well. Thank you. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.